At one point, he even said to the Ukrainians, look, if you let me take Bakhmut, if you just withdraw your forces and let me take it, I will reveal to you Russian military positions in Ukraine that you can then fire on. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Ben Landy. It's Friday, May 19th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe to discuss the Russian mercenary leader who's been criticizing Putin in Ukraine and the speculation that he's become a threat to the Kremlin. And later on, a Senate confirmation scandal that could have a huge impact on the military. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday, everyone. I'm Ben Landy, doing my best Peter Hamby impression while he's on his honeymoon. And I'm delighted to be here with Puck's own Julia Yaffe. Hey, Julia. Hi. Julia, I, I love that you show up for every Zoom meeting and podcast recording in front of this same incredibly photogenic, very scholarly bookcase backdrop here. This is for, for people who are listening and who can't visualize. This is exactly how Julia appears on television. She shows up to our podcast recordings, too. Well, that's it's just my office. Also, what listeners didn't see me do was a Vanna White gesturing <laughs> to my bookshelf. Well, meanwhile, I, I look like I'm in uh, the world's least secure panic room here. Yeah, it's all right. I'll send you some books. <laughs> well, speaking of security, Julia, I wanted to have you on for, for a couple of reasons. But let's start with Ukraine, because there's been some very strange sort of developments in the war involving Yevgeny Prigozhin the Putin frenemy who runs the Wagner Group. This is this mercenary army group that is fighting in Ukraine. Do you want to take a sort of stab at explaining what's going on between these two? Um, so for the last few months, actually at least half a year, if not longer, Prigozhin, who was known for a long time as Putin's chef and denied any involvement in the Wagner Group, but is now constantly down in Bakhmut on the front lines, shooting videos of himself near the battle lines, uh, talking to his soldiers, many of whom are convicts, former convicts. And they have been the main force, Wagner has been the main force trying to take the city of Bakhmut. Uh, they've been trying to take it. Battles around there started in August, but really it heated up in the fall, and they still haven't been able to take it despite suffering tens of thousands of casualties, sometimes at astronomical rates. You know, there, um, I saw a Ukrainian official describe the Wagner tactics in Bakhmut as meat waves that they just send in oh my God. waves, wave after wave of basically shock troops, poorly armed shock troops against, you know, high Mars against uh, heavy Ukrainian artillery. And a lot of these men were, were taken from Russian prisons, right? They were basically given the option of staying in prison or joining Wagner. Yes. And some of them were given the option. I mean, there was a amazing but horrific article in the New York Times a few months ago by the incredible Andrew Kramer about how a lot of these prisoners are HIV positive, which is rampant in Russian prisons. And Wagner gave them the opportunity of rotting in jail and dying in jail, literally, or 
uh, having a shot at getting these medications by joining Wagner. But if you look at the battle for Bakhmut, these waves of meat being sent at the Ukrainian lines, I mean, they've been decimated. And Prigozhin has been publicly, I mean, he's been slagging Gerasimov, who is in charge of the war, and Defense Minister Shoigu for not providing him sufficient artillery and ammunition, saying that basically you are the reason that these people are dying. And a couple of weeks ago, he posted a video that was just incredibly graphic, where he's standing there in the dark, the camera's light is on, and it's lighting up what's behind him, which is a field full of bodies. And he's saying, these are people's sons, they're people fa- people's fathers, and they're all dying in droves because of you, Gerasimov, and you, Shaigu, because you won't give us the ammunition we need. And that was a very cleaned up version of what he said because he, you know, called them bitches and faggots and just used insane language. He then threatened to withdraw his forces from Bakhmut by May 10th, so the day after Victory Day, if he didn't get the artillery he was demanding. He also put out a video slamming somebody he didn't name, but called him Grandpa, Dedushka, which in Russian society is generally code for Putin. People call him Dedushka v Bunkere, which is uh, bunker grandpa, grandpa hiding in the bunker, right? And he just went off on this grandpa and said that he was history could either vindicate this grandpa or show him to be a total fucking idiot. And by the way, just just to underscore like how crazy this is. I mean, Russia, this is a country where people are being arrested for holding up blank signs. And here comes Prigozhin with an army and says he goes after Dedushka and he calls him a mudak. And mudak comes is a Russian word that means somebody who is both hapless and an idiot but also kind of an asshole and a dickhead. How is this guy still alive? Well, it's a good question. In fact, I sent you a meme before we started recording. You did. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, it's that classic meme format where you have a guy and a girl in bed turned away from each other. And the guy is saying, hmm, should I get her a new dress? And the girl is thinking, who's behind Prigozhin and when is he going to get fucking whacked? And this is going around in like Russian telegram channels. Yeah, exactly. And... I think that's what everybody's wondering, you know, because how does he get away with it? How does he get away with the things that we learned about in the Washington Post this week, for example? Uh, We learned that one of the documents in the Discord leak was about how Prigozhin reaches out to the Ukrainian intelligence services. And at one point, he even said to the Ukrainians, look, if you let me take Bakhmut, if you just withdraw your forces and let me take it, I will reveal to you Russian military positions in Ukraine that you can then fire on. Uh, the Ukrainians didn't obviously didn't take him up on that, obviously don't trust him, and I think with good reason. It created a stir because it showed people that, yet again, that he is not operating with the interests of the Russian motherland at heart, let's just say, but that he is operating for his own, for the sake of his own ambition. And this has been the question for months now is, is he a real threat to Putin? Or is he Putin's kind of junkyard dog to scare the elites? 
these days it's starting to look more like the former, although it's hard to say. All right, Julia, we've got to go to break. But when we get back, I want to talk to you about another national security crisis a little bit closer to home. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right. I found that on Etsy. It's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Hey, Julia, welcome back. So we have an ambassador to Ukraine, but actually around a fifth of all the American ambassador posts are still unfilled, which is totally insane when you consider how important that particular job is to the whole diplomatic and national security apparatus of this country. How unusual is that? Like, is that a sort of recent Trump and post-Trump era phenomenon, holding up nominations for political reasons? Well, holding up nominations for political reasons is a very old story. But it has taken on new proportions and new significance during this administration uh, because, A, because Trump wrecked the State Department and didn't take this very seriously. And he, he also had a very high proportion of political appointees like donors and friends, whatever, appointed to very important ambassadorial roles. So there's a lot of damage to fix, one. And two, uh, in the first two years of the Biden presidency, the Senate, which has to vet all these nominees, was split 50-50. And so they were constantly deadlocked, right? And it gave each individual senator a lot of power to ask for things. It's like everybody was their own little Joe Manchin on this committee, So let's say you have an important ambassadorial post that needs to be filled. And knowing this, a senator on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee from the opposite party says, oh, well, I really need X. I really need, for example, this actually happened. Um, I really need a visa for my friend. It's like, what? How? How is this relevant, right? And so there's just an unprecedented amount of hostage taking that has happened. And the other thing is that a lot of female nominees from the Biden administration 
ended up getting stuck. There are now 14 nominees who are stalled on the Senate floor, and every single one of them is a woman. And the third thing is, uh, is that the Biden administration was really slow to nominate people. They really wanted to go overboard and vet these nominees as thoroughly as possible to kind of show how unlike Trump they had been. For example, it was only last week that Biden named an ambassador to Italy, which is nuts because Italy is a G7 country and the Italians are very upset. We're very insulted that they had to deal with a deputy chief of, chief of mission, a DCM, basically like, you know, an acting ambassador instead of the ambassador themselves. And it did damage to our relationship with an important ally. You see a real pattern in the kinds of nominees who are getting rejected or stuck in confirmation purgatory. Talk to me a little bit more about what you're hearing from people inside the Senate about why that's actually happening. Well, the Republicans didn't really want to talk to me, but the Democrats and people at state and people involved in this nominations process have told me that basically a few things are happening, especially when the committee was split 50-50 and any one Republican senator could get all his or her, well, his colleagues in a line. But it was um, a committee that had only one female senator until January. And a lot of the women going through were either grilled on abortion, even if it wasn't relevant to their office, because the assumption, I guess, on the Republican side is that if you're a woman and a Democrat, you must be an abortionist. And let's make you controversial for that reason, even if your ambassadorship has nothing to do with abortion. Right. So that was one one issue. Another issue has, was tweets, as we've seen with the case of Neera Tandon earlier in the Biden administration. So after we saw Trump and his ambassadors like Rick Grinnell tweeting crazy shit for four years, suddenly Republicans on the committee had real trouble with tweets that nominees had sent, especially if they were about Republicans on the committee. That apparently was disqualifying to serve in an ambassadorial role as, or as a, at a senior job at state. If you had tweeted about negatively about any of the Republican senators on the committee. And for example, this became an issue with Deborah Lipstadt, who's a renowned Holocaust scholar, who was appointed by Biden to be his envoy for combating anti-Semitism. And she had called out Ron Johnson for white supremacy when he said to a radio station shortly after January 6th, he said, no, I wasn't scared. I only would have been scared or worried if the protesters were Black Lives Matter protesters. Wow. Right. Exactly. Wow. And Deborah Lipstadt was like, that is racist. That is white supremacy, white nationalism in a nutshell. And Ron Johnson happens to be on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And when Deborah Lipstadt came before that committee, he was like, huh, you tweeted something mean you about me and you called me a racist. So we're going to need additional vetting and was able to hold her up for six months. There was another um, nominee that was held for almost two years because of a tweet about the BDS movement. And she was asked in private meetings 
with Republicans on the committee, do you support BDS? And she said, no, I don't support BDS. And that was it. She was flagged for her quote unquote tone. And she never made it out of the committee. You know, these are not things that happen to male nominees, right? They're not flagged for tone. Yeah, it does seem like there's this clear undercurrent of sexism with some of this. And it's also evidence of just how petty a lot of politics has become. You also mentioned the other day that there are hundreds of Pentagon nominations being held up. The military used to be this sort of untouchable arena mm-hmm. for politics. Mm-hmm. I mean, may- maybe I'm being a little bit reductive here, but I mean, in the past, you-, you wouldn't have seen that. Very, very critical roles that have been left unfilled throughout yep. the armed forces because they're being held hostage for political reasons. Yeah, well, because Senator Tommy Tuberville, a former Alabama football coach, is holding them up, nearly 200 very crucial Pentagon nominees. And some of these are just promotions that they've earned, but they have to be run through, at a certain level, they have to be run through the Senate. And he's holding them up because Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, signed a memorandum saying that the U.S. military would help women seeking to get reproductive care travel. And Tuberville said, you know, we have this thing called the Hyde Amendment, right, in which no federal funds are allowed to be used for abortion. And this is in violation of the Hyde Amendment, even though the Defense Secretary's memo said it has to comply with the Hyde Amendment. Anyway, he's holding them up over abortion. And he's also holding them up because of transgender people in sports. And the, the other thing that's crazy about Tuberville is... Recently, uh, last week, he went on a local Alabama radio station and was asked about this. And he said, and another thing about the military, everybody's saying that we need to get white nationalists and, and white supremacists out of the military, but I just think they're Americans and we shouldn't be pushing them out of the military. So, you know, while the Republican Party is hammering the military for being too woke, You have Tuberville, who sits on the Senate Armed Services Committee, is blocking these nominations and defending the right of white nationalists to carry arms and wear our nation's uniform. Yeah, well, I assume guys like Tuberville, they have a very clear idea of who they think should be in the military, what the military is supposed to be. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not defending his position at all, but, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of Republicans now see the Pentagon and the military as a valid target for political attacks because it has adopted slightly more progressive politics actually around things like allowing openly gay or transgender members to serve um, Mm -hmm. or ensuring that women have access to reproductive health care. These are actually really important issues for a very, very large modern institution that has a recruiting problem. They, They want to attract young people who are more progressive, even people who are entering the military. And without those things, it it really is going to become a sort of culturally ossified and more repressive institution. They're not going to be able to meet those quotas. Yeah, totally. And, you know, one of the reasons we can't meet those quotas is because so many young people are being disqualified for obesity, for example, which is just such an American problem. And what's interesting about You know, the dynamic you described is like so many things in the post-Trump era, the kind of alliances, allegiances have flipped. So before Republicans were the ones always, you know, thanking our veterans and our troops and uh, always trying to defend the military. Now it's Democrats who are like, 
this is perfect. What a perfect moment for us to talk about how we defend the military, how we're strong on the military, whereas it's Republicans who are attacking them. You know, just like post-Trump and post-Russiagate, suddenly Democrats love national security and they love the intelligence community, right? Which was really, let's just say, not the case, let's say, during the Bush years and even the Obama years. So it's just, uh, I think, another way in which our politics have been flipped upside down in so many arenas. Yeah, you're right. It's totally interesting how there's been this complete reversal there. Julia, we've got to leave it there for the day, but thanks so much for coming by. Always appreciate your insight. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Dylan Byers. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck, and Bob Tabador.